tonight. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 tonight. Once again, Genesis chapter 3. So, after God's creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them, he created man in his image and after his likeness, male and female, as we studied when we were there, as a son, basically, to exercise dominion over that creation. The design was for the man and woman to be fruitful and multiply, thus filling the earth and subduing it, spreading the paradise of this place called the Garden of Eden until it covered the whole earth where we would dwell with God in joy and in his freedom and rest forever. But then came the fall in chapter 3. We looked at this last week in our desire. The essence of the fall was that in our desire to be autonomous, in our desire to be free, instead of having God rule over us in paradise, we sinned against him by trying to self-identify, to trust ourselves rather than him. And the text last week ended with Adam and Eve then sewing fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, and everything falls apart from here. But the fall is not the end of the story. The Bible doesn't end in excuse me, in Genesis 3-7, which is almost pointless to say because if it did, it wouldn't exist. We wouldn't even be here. In the fall of man, the character of God is going to be revealed. The facts demand death. God, however, insists on life for his creatures. It's the mercy and grace of a God that we now know creates out of nothing that will be the force driving the rest of all scripture. God will be ultimate in what becomes of the human race, not the human race. It's very important. Rather than, that's what's revealed here in the rest of chapter 3, rather than destroying humanity for its disobedient refusal to get its identity only from him, God curses Adam and Eve with conflict and death, but also comforts humanity with the promise of peace and life. The sacrifice of the seed of the woman will cover us once and for all. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us all understand this passage tonight. Lord, I pray that you would help me preach clearly. I pray, Lord, that what comes out of my mouth will be from you and therefore glorifying to you. If it comes from me, it will not be and will not do that. And so, Father, I ask you to help me to overshadow me that I might be clear and correct tonight. And Lord, please help everyone to understand, help everyone to listen as we learn about you when we learn about ourselves in the book of Genesis. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's start tonight, actually, back in verse 7, just quickly, where we ended last week to put the next few verses in context. So they've uh, Eve has eaten the fruit. She gave some to her husband who was with her. He also took it and ate it. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They wanted knowledge, remember. They thought in some way we can infer that they believed God was withholding something from them. They wanted knowledge. They wanted to stand autonomous and free on their own. Well, now they do, and it's horrible. Look at verse 8. Let me read from 8 to 11. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Sorry, excuse me. God will not allow Adam and Eve to remain hidden, right? He, He won't allow that. So he calls to Adam. As if God didn't know where he was or what had happened. That, that's, God is not trying to gather information here. He's drawing out his newly created son. Where are you? Is what he asked. The implication here is that God likely came to walk with them often. And Adam is not where he would normally be when God came to the garden. But look at what has happened in verse 10. Adam is now afraid of the sound of the Lord's voice. Because he knows he's naked. See, that the instant result is separation. He's now afraid of the Lord because he knows he's naked. The sound of God calling his name now instills fear and shame in Adam. This, that's really the tragedy of the fall. The voice that breathed life into Adam now scares him to hear. It wasn't supposed to be that way. With the knowledge of good and evil comes the fear of the Lord's voice. Maybe that has something to do with why he didn't want them to have that knowledge. He didn't want us to be afraid of him. He didn't want us to be afraid of the sound of his voice or his presence. But once we know we have sinned, we can't come close anymore. Not only are we afraid to be in his presence, we're even afraid to hear his voice. There's a direct correlation between the knowledge of good and evil and Adam's awareness of his nakedness. That awareness means they had eaten of the tree. It's obvious. They wouldn't have it if they hadn't have eaten. And they're afraid. They know. At the very least, Adam knows. He heard, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam probably thinks God has come to carry out the sentence, to kill him. There was no need to fear the promise of death unless the commandment had been broken. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The knowledge of good and evil did not advance Adam's intelligence or cognition. It's not the kind of knowledge that it was. Now that Adam has decided, along with Eve, to think for himself, what is his solution to the problem? It's God's fault. You see that? The minute Adam is free to think on his own, he blames God. He puts God in the dock. God has done something wrong. God has harmed him. It's God's fault. That's who he's blaming here when he blames Eve. So can you hear just in that, by the way, how unoriginal the modern objections to God really are? How much of the Garden of Eden's fall still remains in our DNA? We honestly ask questions like, well, if God is so good, why does he allow evil? That's this. It's the exact same basic thing. That's almost precisely what Adam is implying here. You, you did this, right? I, I was just fine. And then you made this beautiful thing, and now I, now look where we are. Right? I mean, that's basically what Adam is saying. This is your fault. You fix it. He blames God by blaming Eve. The knowledge of good and evil arrogantly emboldened us and fractures our relationships. Because that's what is happening. How do you think Eve felt standing there when, her, when he said that? Like, could you imagine, like, what, what, are, what are you doing? 
right? I mean, just, just imagine the moment. It fractures relationships. Gee, I wonder why God didn't want us to have it. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve blames the serpent and its deception. Neither take responsibility. Not, not really, right? Although Adam's issue here is much deeper than Eve's. When humans have the knowledge of good and evil, we do not use it to arrive at the truth. We use it to serve ourselves by excusing our own actions. And we, we still do see this today when men try to blame women for why they lust, which is really blaming God, right? If, if you wouldn't have made, made them like this, I wouldn't be so tempted to look. That's blaming God for your lust. That's what that is. God didn't make a mistake, right? We, we've talked at length about this. Do we realize when we th- that in paradise, if no one had the knowledge of good and evil, everyone would be naked and unashamed and no one would be lusting, right? The, the, the shape of the body is not the source of lust. God is not the source of lust. We lust because we fell. It, it, it's not, again... It's the self-approving desire of the human heart now that it can think on its own that creates lust. When, when we left dependency completely on God and what he said to us, rather than being free to think for ourselves, which is not a great thing, philosophy has told us it is, it's not, it's the fall, right? We, we should have just listened to God and accepted whatever he said, no questions asked. Now we're free, right? We talked about this last week. That's a massive problem. It's not an advantage. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a result of the fall. It's a result of the curse. We lust because we fell, not because men's or women's bodies are evil. Yes, the Bible teaches there is a place for modesty. Absolutely. But modesty is not called for because God made some kind of mistake and the female body is inherently bad. It, it, it is not inherently bad. What God made is good. Just as modesty is called for by God, I think now to protect women from the lust of men and give women the dignity of not being defined by their bodies in a world that has been cursed with knowledge that it never should have had. The fall ruined everything. It's a disaster that we have this knowledge. That's how the Bible describes it. So God responds to this in verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for, which which really should read against your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Who, whose curse do we have? We don't have the curse of Eve. We have the curse of Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God responds to the fall 
with his word, doesn't he? The word that creates out of nothing also has the authority to curse. And when the word of God curses, it does so irrevocably, right? There's nothing that man can do now to get out from underneath this this curse. Now the curse is ultimate over humanity. First, God curses the serpent. So God first addresses the source of the temptation. He curses the serpent above all livestock and all the beasts of the field. All the animals are cursed. The most cursed is the serpent, literally. Right? I mean, it's very rare to find somebody that loves snakes. Right? There's just something about them. But it will crawl on its belly from this moment forward. And we know, remember, we, we don't find out till way later in Scripture that this was Satan. But we know that's who it was. So it's not just, by the way then, biological snakes being cursed here. Satan is being cursed here. The one who thought to rise up and take his place from God will now basically crawl on his belly for all eternity. But the serpent remains. Right? The serpent remains in creation. And if the, the implication is if the serpent remains, the man and the woman will always be in danger. That reality, beloved, is the occasion for what is the thesis statement of the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15. What God decrees here will reverberate throughout Scripture. This, this prefigures every sin in Genesis. It prefigures the history of the nation of Israel and of Jesus and the entire world. These verses are a prophecy spoken directly to man by the Lord. Now there will be a post-fall order to the universe, and at its core is enmity, conflict. Nothing now yielding to God, but everything resisting him and each other. Everybody will fight to win now. Everybody will fight to rule the creation. It's God who put that order in place. Because God is going to do something to end the enmity that will accomplish better than any other option the goal he had for creation. God is going to do something so indescribable that it will have the power to end his own curse. And so into rest, God introduces enmity. Now, what is the opposite of enmity? It's peace, rest. That's really what we lost. That's what we lost. But that's what God will get back. The question is, how will God get it back? And the answer of God's word is a seed. Look look, look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The serpent is going to have offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse reveals the plan and promise of God for creation in light of the fall. Two seeds, two offsprings, and the conflict between them. That's human history. Two uh, offsprings are introduced into the storyline of the Bible of humanity. That theme can be traced through the history of mankind all the way to the very end of time. That's what Revelation 12, 13 through 17 is describing, this perpetual conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. But in the curse is the promise that will break it, right? Because the seed of the woman will come to do battle with the seed of the serpent. There's going to be a war here. There are two seeds all throughout human history. The seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman at war, at enmity. 
with one another in constant conflict to either keep the curse over us in ultimate or break the curse. And the pages of Scripture will take the concept of the seed of the woman and its ongoing conflict with the seed of the serpent that, by the way, begins in the very next chapter, right, the very next chapter, and it will, Scripture will take that theme and sharpen it until it's clear that the focus of Genesis 3.15 is on one person. One person. And he, that seed, that individual seed of the woman, is the promise of redemption. The plan is put in place here for a son of God to come. Another son of God, another image bearer, who will finally be able to resist the temptation of the serpent, and in so doing, reclaim paradise for mankind. If you back, this is what Jesus is doing when he's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He's, he's, he's winning it back. That's where it all starts on earth for him as one of us. So what we're looking for is we read the rest of the Bible. Because remember, they're getting it in, uh, prob- most likely again, as Israel is about to enter the promised land. So they haven't seen the whole story yet. They don't know the whole story yet. So what the author of Genesis is doing is saying, all right, be on the lookout for, as we read the rest of the Bible, as we go throughout the rest of history, a seed of the woman who comes along that can finally resist the serpent. Because when that seed of a woman appears, that's the one. That's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Our redemption has come. We can get back to paradise when we see that seed. I think that's why there's such a focus on, I think that's why it maybe was allowed for a time for men to marry multiple women, although it's not ideal and not right, but what, what are they thinking? We got to bring this seed into the world. Keep at it, right? Keep at it. Oren Martin writes, hence the story of redemption will be an unfolding of the contents of this conflict and promise. From this point, all of Old Testament revelation looks forward, points forward, and eagerly awaits the promised redeemer. If, if you read the Bible with Genesis 3.15 in your head from here on out, it, it just explodes to you. It's, it's beautiful the way God has done this. Redemption is being introduced here in this one verse. And the Bible traces the development of that redemptive theme all the way to its conclusion. Redemption, covering, covering. That's what it will have to be. God will have to cover the nakedness of our guilt or there is no hope. And I, I love how here in the very beginning... God wastes zero time in putting mankind and the cosmos on notice here about this conflict. God is saying, I am going to win. That's what he says. So this, there's going to be conflict. This is going to happen. However, I'm going to win. Right? It's, that's, you see, that's the sovereignty of God. That's, that's why it's not a threat to you and I. It's not a threat to us now. It's, it's, it's the pillow on which to rest our heads. Because if, if we are sovereign, what do the promises mean? They carry no weight, right? God says, I'm going to win. While this conflict will characterize all human history, which it will, it will zero in and be fought mainly by the snake and this one seed of the woman. It's really their war. And the snake will do damage. He will bruise the seed's heel, which... It's not a, a, a literal statement that that's all he's going to do. It's a statement of, of two kinds of damage, right? The, the serpent is going to bruise the heel. He's going to do damage to the seed, 
But the seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent's head. The seed of the woman is going to deal a death blow to the serpent. So God puts the serpent, which is Satan, on notice here. You will remain as this world goes on, but the offspring of the woman will be the victor in this conflict. So, beloved, everything now moves on from this one word from the Lord. The second curse that comes is for the woman. So God addresses first the source of the temptation. Now he addresses the serpent's victim. But he also very clearly implies culpability on her part. There are two parts to the curse on the woman. Her pain and childbearing will increase, multiply. What, what does that tell us in light of that promise? The means of salvation, offspring, will be difficult and painful. That's an immediate threat to the promise coming true. Who likes pain? What do we do with pain? We try to avoid it. So, Is the woman going to want to continue bearing children in light of the pain that she experiences in it? Right, That's an immediate threat right out of the gate to the promise. You mean the seed might be in danger? Yes. right. It's it's an immediate threat. The promise is under threat by God's design from the moment it was given. The tension in the Bible comes from whether or not in light of all this opposition, that's the place of barren women in this story, In light of all this opposition, will the seed be able to succeed? What is God doing when he's he's making sure he's the only one that will be able to bring about this victory? He's going to have to step in is what the Bible is hinting at here. Remember, for us, it's crystal clear. We have have a closed canon from Genesis to Revelation. They did not. They didn't. Offspring will only be brought forth in pain. And so the second part of the curse on the woman is that her desire will be for, again, against her husband for what to take over his place as the head, right? That's why the text sounds the way it does. Your desire shall be for your husband, against your husband, and he shall rule over you. You see what the opposite of that that is? That's telling you the woman is going to want to rule, to usurp the man's place, namely in the marriage as the head. And, but in, if, if you expand that, biblically speaking, in all creation, to become the head of the human race. We see that every day. Right? We see it every day. I don't mean any insult to you ladies at all. But, but this, the, the, the new wave of, of feminism, which, which is just brutal and insane, is, is that coming to uh, fruition. It's, 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 a, it's a very evil thing. But no matter how much the woman wants to usurp the place of the man, he is going to rule over her, right? What is that a recipe for? Conflict. Just constant conflict. That's creation. No peace, no rest, conflict. The curse is that now the woman, the wife, will desire to have the place of the man, the husband, but the husband will rule over her. That is a statement of fact, whether the husband likes it or not. And I say that the husband is the head of the marriage, but that doesn't mean... She'll let him be, nor does it mean he'll be good at it, right? This means that marriage, which was created by God, we know from chapter 2, so that the male and female could exercise the dominion over the earth that God created them together to have, with Adam as a sufficient and loving head, Eve as his joyful helper, that relationship is now a cursed relationship. Adam 
and everybody after him, every man after him, will be a terrible head, and Eve will be at best a reluctant but envious helper. And we will get all their DNA. The whole creation is in jeopardy here, is what you're reading. It's all in jeopardy. If, if, a, if a book on marriage doesn't address the reality of the curse, it is not going to be able to help you. Because when I say help, I mean point you to your Savior as your only true husband instead of trying to twist your spouse into a better one. If a book on marriage does that, it's working against the design of God, not for it. God has designed marriages to feel the weight of the curse, to never be so um, complete that we could feel like I've reached paradise. It's, It's set up to never feel that way. It's as much a threat to the promise as pain in childbirth is. All the curses are threats to the promise. No human being can complete us. No one. Only the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 can complete us. Women will now desire to be the head of the marriage and they'll fight to become so. Men will either treat their wives horribly and abuse headship by abusing her, or more commonly, which I think is the essence of it, they will be like Adam who did nothing to protect his wife. I, I, I really think that it is, is, it is, as it reflects the fall, the biggest threat is, is a man letting his wife take the place of the man. Again, that, that's not, I'm not trying to, we, we want to learn to think biblically. All right, it, it's men will desire to let the woman lead, which is what? It's shirking the responsibility that God gave to them. That's what that is. It's not mature. It's not kind. It's saying to your wife, see all these bullets and arrows coming at us? That's what it is. That's what Adam did to her. You see, what, you see what's happening? This, that's the essence of evil. Adam said, Adam is standing. We, we learned from the earlier part of Genesis 3. He was there the whole time. Adam, stick up for your wife. Get in there. Shut up the snake. Said, what does the human race need? It needs a head who will shut the snake up, who will step in front of his bride, who the, who the serpent is attacking every day, and say, no, 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 you can't have her. No, we will submit to the Lord. Right? That's a man. That's a man in the Bible. Which again, you know who the true man is? It's Jesus. There's one real man in this universe. We might be able to come close. Or no, wait a minute. I never said that. Don't quote me on that. That's, thank you, Wayne. I did, what I meant was we may do things for our wives and we should marry men to protect her, serve her, lead her, provide for her. But we, we, we won't be ever able to hold a candle to Jesus Christ for his bride. Right? That, that's, that's where the failing wife and the failing husband's hope is in Christ. Right? So, really, the mandate in Ephesians 5, when we get to that great, great text, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's basically the answer to the curse, finally. Right? God's saying that this, this is what will 
undo it. One day, the Bible will call the man to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is, he actually stepped in to shut the serpent up and protect his wife from her. That's Jesus being the new Adam, giving himself up for his wife rather than just letting the snake have her. And the woman will be called to submit to the husband as the church does to Christ, not seeking to take his rule for themselves, but to live in joyful submission under it. That, okay, so, in other words, the, the, the unique roles in marriage have nothing to do with gender. They have everything to do with redemption. So the, the man could not look at, at Genesis and say, see, I'm, I'm above you. I have more value than you. No, no, no. We each have a role to play in showing forth God's design in redemption. That's why there are differences. Not because male is qualitatively better than female. Right? That, that, that's not ever remotely the case. Both made in the image of God. So that also means that's what the church's refusal to submit to Christ in everything it does really is. It's the curse. It's the curse. Only in the marriage of Jesus to the church can the curse on marriage ever be undone. That couple is fruitful and multiplies by making disciples of all nations so that God's children fill the earth with the gospel that brings us back from our rebellion. Right? This marriage, the real, the true marriage, the one that physical marriages are meant to point to, and being called to be fruitful and multiply, those are shadows of what happens when Jesus comes and marries the church and takes a bride to himself. The Great Commission is the new be fruitful and multiply. Make disciples. Spread that paradise, salvation, all over the world. You see it come together? It's, it's, it's beautiful. Even the best human beings will only ever be capable of reproducing seed that has the curse. We, we need a marriage in the world that can reproduce seed that doesn't have the curse. Right? That's Christ in the church and the great commission. In other words, the point of all that is there's no part of this plan where human beings undo the curse. It, it's, it's not in the cards. That's what we're seeing here. That's the, in verses 17 through 19, the third and last curse is to Adam. So God lastly addresses the head of the creation. Adam, the one who was with Eve when she ate, but actually ate second. The curse on Eve uniquely encompassed women. The curse on Adam encompasses the whole creation. So, excuse me, the head determines the state of the body. You see that? The head of the race determines the state of the body. The sin of the head of creation damages the whole creation. We find that out here, that, oh, we're all cursed now. Because Adam is our head. So in order to save humanity, this seed will have to be a whole new Adam. Because, again, what was Adam's sin in verse 17? The Bible tells you he listened to the voice of his wife. That, that, hap- that is said before it's said that he ate the fruit. So Eve eating the fruit is not technically the cause of the fall. The cause of the fall is Adam letting her, okay, letting her. He listened to the voice of his wife and therefore ate of the fruit. He was commanded by God not to eat. He listened to Eve's voice rather than God. Which is why Eve is cursed with the desiring her husband's place. God is in essence giving us what we wanted. That was part of her sin, trying to feed him rather than vice versa. So, cursed is the ground because of Adam, not because of Eve, not because of the serpent. 
This is the responsibility of being the head, right? The template for who this seed in Genesis 3.15 will be and what he will do is forming in this text. We're hearing what the seed of the woman is going to do as we listen to the curses. In pain will Adam eat of the ground all the days of his life, right? Because in verse 18, now the ground will bring forth thorns and thistles for him. They weren't there before. It will be difficult to bring what is edible out of the earth. Things are going to get in the way. It will now be sweat to survive since death is in the picture. And since he was taken from the ground, that is where he will return. So as life came from the ground, God designs that death will be a return to it. But no, a return to the material of his creation, not the source of his creation. Right? Death, apart from someone intervening and changing the situation, death is simply a return to the dust. It is not a return to God. Dust to dust, then, is a statement of futility. Romans 8, 20 and 21. Futility. Ours is now a circular existence that just no matter what you do, no matter where you go, ends up where you started. That's the story of the Bible. Again, everything you see here is the seed of everything in the Bible, which I think is divine. I mean, seeds are... I mean, it's it's amazing, the intricacy of God here. What, What happens... Abraham from Babylon becomes Israel, who goes into Exodus, or goes from Exodus and the promised land, paradise. Where does Israel end back up? Babylon. You just went Babylon to Babylon. That's Matthew 1. That's all that, after all this, what was it? Babylon, and we're back. Right? Now we're in exile here. So what does that tell you? That nobody... Here is the seed of Genesis 3.15 that was promised. Because when he comes, the path is from garden to garden. Paradise lost to paradise regained. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Adam names his wife Eve because she's the mother of all the living. Her name is attached to her purpose, to the promise. Names from here on out in the Bible will be related in one way or another to the promise. So it's extremely bleak, isn't it, by the end of verse 20? The creation and all its relationships have now been cursed, and every human being is doomed to live in conflict and futility and then die. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So wait a second. A curse means life has to go on, right? People have to be there to feel it. But God hadn't said he would curse them if they disobeyed. God said he would kill them if they disobeyed. What is this? What's happening here? The minute God starts talking, the minute God shows up in the garden, not setting the garden on fire, what in the world is going on? Right? Look at... Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. There's not only a curse in Genesis 3, there is a covering. Their fig leaves were not good enough. They needed something better. So God makes garments sufficient to cover their nakedness physically. In the covering of Adam and Eve with animal skins by God, it is whispered to us that 
This is what the seed of the woman will do for us by crushing the serpent's head. The victory of the seed means the salvation of human beings. That's what we see come to fruition in this passage. That's why they don't die instantly. Because God had a plan and made a promise to accomplish it. It isn't that Adam was wrong in believing that his nakedness needed covering. It's that he couldn't make a sufficient covering. Nor does our sinful race to this day possess the knowledge of how to redeem. That belongs to God alone. So mercy will finally triumph over judgment. That's the basis of all human history. That's why we're still here. Because God's mercy triumphs over God's judgment when God sends his own son to stand in the way. Beloved, God is not only a God who curses, he is a God who covers. There, there is still today and always will be as long as the earth stands, the unavoidable reality of the curse in this world. But woven into its every strand is also the constant reality of God's promise to cover. Look, look at 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Again, that's a divine prerogative, right? That's Freedom is a divine prerogative. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So sin creates a, fact, a, a fracture that tragically cannot be fixed from this side. Right? The God who had taken Adam and put him in the garden, remember that back in 2.15, now drives him out of it in 3.24. The message in these last few verses is that the redemption God is promising in 3.15 and gives evidence of in 3.21, what I, I should say that, 321 reveals that the promise in 315 is a promise of redemption. The message, however, in these last few verses is that that will not be accomplished by us. God is hinting here that the seed of the woman will somehow be divine. He's hinting here that something massive is going to happen. This seed is going to be something different but the same, right? God removes man from the garden so that, if you'll notice, man is unable to get immortality back by simply eating a piece of fruit. Right? Do you see that? Eating from the tree of life. And so the next commission to man then stems from the curse rather than God's promise of blessing. This commission stems from the curse. He is sent to work the ground from which he was taken, which we now know will no longer yield to him. So something's very different than God telling him to work the garden. This is very different. Nothing's going to yield to him now. Nothing. that's That's the characteristic of creation. It resists God's design. God drove them out of the garden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, a cherubim with a flaming sword is placed to guard the way to the tree of life. I I don't think that's... um, like a, a metaphor for anything. I think it means exactly what it says. I think there's a reason we can't find it. I, just, I, I believe that's absolutely literal. There's no reason to take it a different way. 
So to guard the way to the tree of life, to guard the way to mankind's ability to simply eat fruit and gain his life back, only God will provide that. We lost paradise by our actions. We will not regain it by our actions. Humanity cannot and will not save itself. That, beloved, is the mercy of God. Because our answer to sin is fig leaves, and they will not suffice. So this passage begins with Adam and Eve covering themselves. It ends with God covering Adam and Eve. But with what? That's the question here tonight. With what? What is sufficient to cover their nakedness and guilt and shame? Only the skin of another. God says through the skins he provided, they didn't go out and get them. Notice that? God didn't say, now go find yourself some animal skins and cover yourselves up. God did that. God says through the skins he provided, I will save you by the death of another. I will cover you by the death of another by substitution. The victory will be won when the seed of the woman crushes the serpent's head by standing in the place of mankind to absorb my wrath because that seed will be the only one ever perfect enough to satisfy my justice. Your fig leaves, even these animals, they'll never be enough to regain what you have lost or pay the debt your race has incurred with me. And God's answer for this curse, the design of the one who made the world, is his own son to be that substitute. All along, that was the plan. So now we see how all that the Bible tells us about what God had planned before he even created the world. Now, this is why the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, right? Now we're seeing all that come to fruition. Now we see how his will is going to be accomplished. The substitution of one for another, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the sinner, the new Adam for a new humanity. When at the end of the day, all of that boils down to a husband for a wife, where it all started. Right? The husband, the true husband, will feel the pain of redemption that Adam should have felt for Eve. Right? That Adam should have felt for Eve if he really loved her. Adam should have stood in front of the serpent in place of his wife. Adam should have stood between God and his wife. Right? I mean, we, I don't mean that rebellion against God would have been approved. I'm saying I think that's part of what's going on here. Adam should have stepped in and said, no, 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 I, I was standing right there and I didn't do anything. Don't, don't, don't take her. Take me. Right? Now, just, just imagine what redemption is. Just, just imagine what it is. It, it's Eve had sinned. Right? We have sinned. We're guilty. We're guilty. What, what is redemption of this bride? I... I He's absolutely guilty. Let the punishment fall on me. Sentence me. Judge me. Let her live. Judge me. It's an amazing thing. Adam should have stood in front of the serpent in place of his wife. He should have been her substitute. Beloved, the fall and death stem from the first Adam's refusal to be his wife's substitute. So redemption will stem from the second Adam, the promise, the fulfillment of the promise will stem from the second Adam's willingness to be his wife's substitute. 
That's all the story of the Bible is. We need a substitute. We need a real man to stand in the place of us to redeem us. That is what, that, that substitution is what an obedient son of God looks like in the world, in the face of sin and death. The image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature, exercising dominion perfectly for the life and the salvation of his wife over all creation. That's Jesus. He will save us. That's God's plan. That's God's promise. When judgment fell upon the first bride, Adam blamed her. He should have protected her if he loved her. Beloved, that's tonight. When you go from this place, I want you to think of Jesus in these terms. With these images in your mind. Jesus, and only Jesus, would one day come and be such a husband. When God's just wrath came crashing down on us. Every second of creation and human history hinges on the Garden of Gethsemane. Another garden. It all hinges there. Where Jesus is stepping in the place of a wife who does not deserve substitution. With all that weight, what will he do in light of the Father's clear command? They deserve death. They deserve wrath. Jesus comes, again, not as a robot. He has to succeed by God's design. That's the way God designed it. He has to succeed in the garden. And, and the, the scary thing, the most precarious moment in all of human history is in that garden. Because do you remember? You want to know how real it was? What was happening there? He's starting to sweat blood. Like, like the Son of God. I don't understand how this works. It's, just, it's there. It's real. Is there another way we can do this? Right? Just... just I, I mean, uh, the imagining what's coming, that he's going to bear. I mean, think of what Jesus was taking on himself. It's, it's not a, um, like a, a proxy that he took on himself. Sin. He became sin. That thing God hates, he became it. Right? And in, in, in that moment in the garden, realizing what it's, you know, now that he's been a human for 33, 34 years, this is going to hurt this is going to be awful. This is going to get really dark. So everything's hinging on and what, where, who's been behind the whole thing from the earth standpoint? The serpent. Like you, you don't, at the what does the serpent do at the beginning? That's all he wants to do is derail the promise. At the very beginning, what is Satan doing? You know, if you, if you bow down and serve me, instead of doing what you came here to do, I can give you everything. So Satan's first plan is keep him from the cross. As Satan begins to realize, oh, he's not going to falter. He enters into Judas. Get him killed. We got it. Evil is irrational. Right? I mean, the, 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 everything, everything comes down. When, when Jesus says, this is your hour in the power of darkness. Yeah, let's go back to the, do you see what God, you see how dramatic, you see what God does? Let's take it back to a garden and fight it out one last time. You and my Adam, one more time. That's Calvary. Where, where does Jesus, they put him in the ground. They put him in the dust. The seed, the seed doesn't stay in the dust. right? And now, beloved, neither do you and I. Because Jesus is a true husband, the true husband. So, yes, we continue to die. 
barring the return of our Lord Jesus to take us, which will happen, <laughs> hopefully in our lifetime, but before my kids grow up and have to face this world on their own. I would love that. <laughs> but, yes, we came from the dust, and to the dust we shall return. But the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Adam, penetrates the dust and raises us from the dead. That's where the Bible is going to go from. It's from here on out where we want to ask of Scripture, is that the seed? Is that the seed? Is that the promise? Can we get back to Eden? That's the question of Scripture. Rather than destroying humanity for our disobedient refusal to get our identity from God, God curses Adam and Eve with conflict and death, but also comforts humanity with the promise of peace and life through substitution through the innocent for the guilty. You know, that's the story that makes us who we are. That's what makes us a church. All right? Let's sing together. If there's anything you need to pray about, anything weighing you down, burdening you, please feel free to come and pray tonight. I'll be here if you need prayer for any reason. Father, we, you'll be also, by the way, in page 393. 393, we'll sing in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life that is ours in Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for this book. God, not for the sake of a book, but for the sake of whom it reveals. And so, Father, I pray tonight that all our faith, all our hope, all our eggs be in the basket of the risen Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, our new Adam. And may everyone in this room have the peace that comes from knowing that he is there and that he has fulfilled this promise. And I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.